Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. North Korea detonates a sixth nuclear bomb. Does the latest test mean the time for diplomacy is over and that the North is, quote, begging for war? And one family's return home one week after Harvey. It's Tuesday, September 5th. David Sanger, it feels like we're reporting on a North Korean missile test every other day or so. What's different about what happened on Sunday? Well, Michael, I think your your question is, what made Sunday night different from all other right, nights? Right. And the answer is that this wasn't a missile test. This was a nuclear bomb test, a nuclear weapons test. And it was only the sixth that they've done over the past 11 years. But more importantly, it was the biggest of those six by far. It was the nuclear test where they finally figured this nuclear thing out. Hmm, what do you mean? Their first test or two were kind of fizzles. And then after that, they got to an explosion that was roughly the size of what the United States dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. What happened the other night was they increased that by six, eight, ten times. Wow. We're still trying to understand the amount. We begin with breaking news. North Korea has conducted its most powerful nuclear test to date. They have it developed a weapon that was so powerful that it would truly ravage any American city that it was dropped on. A jubilant newsreader on state TV announced that the bomb test had been a complete success. The device was of unprecedentedly large power, she said. Leader Kim Jong-un inspecting what they call a super-explosive hydrogen bomb that could fit on their intercontinental ballistic missiles. We don't know for sure that the weapon that they tested on Sunday is that mm -hmm. small. But if it isn't that small now, it will be in six months or a year so what we know from this is we don't have much time. And David, how do we actually know that the test happened? Well, within the past hour, seismologists have detected a powerful tremor in North Korea, prompting suggestions... Well, we know the tests occurred, Michael, because it triggers the equivalent of an earthquake. This registered <laughs> on the Richter scale at 6.3. Wow. Think of what a 6.3 earthquake feels like. Very devastating. It can be very devastating. To the members of the Security Council, I must say... Enough is enough. David, I want to talk about the comments that 
the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, made on Sunday at an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council. We have kicked the can down the road long enough. There is no more road left. And what does she mean by kicking the can down the road long enough? Has the United States been putting off dealing with this inevitability? The United States has put it off by responding to each incremental advance by the North Koreans with an incremental increase in pressure. And the cycle was very usual. The North would build something. We'd get into a negotiation. Mm -hmm. It would drag on forever. Eventually, you reached a deal. Eventually, the North cheated on it. Sometimes the U.S. didn't follow through with their part. And then eventually, the deal would fall apart, and you'd go into the cycle all over again. And when you talk to President Trump's aides, they simply say, we're not doing that again. We have engaged in numerous direct and multilateral talks with the North Korean regime. And time after time, they have not worked. The time for half measures in the Security Council is over. And if you don't like Trump, you may think that that sounds warlike. But then remember, Barack Obama wouldn't do it either. He refused to go into negotiations with them at all. Because he said he wasn't going to buy the same horse that the United States had bought before. Which is to say, get swindled. Yeah, we're not going to get swindled again. So uh, President Obama chose to basically freeze them out and not deal with them. The problem was the North Koreans didn't stay still during that period of time. They built themselves into the nuclear capabilities that we're seeing today. So to that point, David, what is Nikki Haley proposing right now to do about this problem? What she's proposing is a much more severe form of sanction as the stick, and that sanction would be to try to cut off North Korea's oil supplies. Nothing in the world of sanctions has proven effective because if you believe, as the North Koreans do, that your country can't survive without the nuclear weapons, then you're going to endure all kinds of economic pain. So this is an experiment in whether or not the North Koreans can survive the biggest pain, which is losing their energy resources, and whether the Chinese are willing to go along with that. Almost all those oil supplies go through China. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the result is that they've got to get the Chinese to sign up to this. That isn't diplomacy. That's using the big stick. Diplomacy is what follows Mm -hmm. when you then say to the North Koreans, okay, here's the way to stop this pain. You do X, Y, and Z on your way to denuclearization. So then, David, with your decade, decades of experience covering North Korea and covering how our government handles this situation, what can you tell people who are quite justifiably anxious about this and who don't quite know what to make of, of some of the language coming out of people like Nikki Haley? Kim Jong-un's action cannot be seen as defensive. His abusive use of missiles and his nuclear threats show that he is begging for war. War is never something the United States wants. We don't want it now. But our country's patience is not unlimited. We will defend our allies and our territory. Is there a way out of this that doesn't involve something resembling war? There's definitely a way out of this that does not involve war if you can get all the other nations in the world to truly enforce truly crippling sanctions. Hmm. But it's not clear that China and Russia are willing to go do that at this point. And so some of the threats that you're seeing from Washington are designed to try to convince the Chinese and the Russians 
that the president is determined to solve this problem. And if he can solve it through sanctions, that's great. But if he can't, he may have to turn to those other options. I don't know whether they believe him. God, it's a really, it's a very complicated situation here. It seems like the biggest challenge is figuring out what North Korea is doing and stopping them. But what you're describing is a geopolitical kind of nightmare of competing interests between countries. Michael, this is three-dimensional chess in geopolitics. Because while North Korea is a tiny, broken little country, it's surrounded by big powers, Russia, China, Japan, South Korea. And each one has a different set of interests in this. David, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. On Monday, South Korean officials warned that North Korea may be preparing to launch its latest ballistic missile in the coming days to mark the anniversary of its government's founding. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more. This is the day the Lord has made. At 11 a.m. on Sunday, at the South Union Missionary Baptist Church on Lydia Street in Houston, service was held for the first time since Hurricane Harvey struck. Anybody grateful? Yes, Reverend Michael V. Smith asked his congregants to dress down so people who lost their clothes in the flooding wouldn't feel out of place showing up in T-shirts and flip-flops. Anybody glad to be in the Lord's house today? I couldn't wait till Sunday morning. I've, I've been tossing all night long, looking forward to this day where we can be in a place, in the presence of believers who've been trusting God who've been through the storm, who've been through the rain, who've been through the floods. And, and he highlighted one family, Chris Amufa and her sister, Maisha. And our sister, Chris, is her family. She's going through trials. She was all on Facebook, putting the shirt out in the window, waiting for rescuers to rescue her. Water that came all the way up in the house upstairs. I'm talking to her on the phone. And while I'm talking on the phone, the water's constantly rising. There are two sisters here. There's Chris Ford Amofa. She's older. And there is her younger sister, Maisha Jolly. Jack Healy met the sisters last week while covering the storm. Chris had been posting on Facebook about her house. The house that she bought with her husband for about $180,000 is the first place that either of them had ever owned. And it, it represented the culmination of, of just so many years of, of work and uncertainty. It took <laughs> saving, saving, saving. Because, you know, growing up, it was never a you need to save kind of situation. It was never like preached to us about saving money. Survival 
is what we learned and what we were taught how to survive, not how to save. Her sister moved over to the northeast side of Houston first, and it was a dream for both of them. They were going to be first-generation homebuyers in their family. We are, we are the first generation to actually buy a home and buy land. We are the first in our whole bloodline. Because we grew up dirt poor backwoods, Louisiana, in a shotgun house. They call them shotgun houses because if, if you aimed a shotgun and you shot, it would go through the front and out the back. Glenmore, Louisiana, little one red light town. And at dark, that red light would start flashing yellow. <laughs> we didn't know we were poor. We were poor. It's an incredibly tight-knit family. The sisters are so close that they talk on the phone constantly. Maisha moved over to the northeast side, and she started, you know, urging Chris to follow her. I think everybody pretty much have the idea of the American dream of buying their first home. And it really set in once I had kids because I wanted to have something to leave my kids. They had spent six years saving up, uh, attending personal finance classes, and repairing their credit in order in order to get it. <laughs> my sister was like, let's go look over here. And when I walked in, I opened the door. I loved the long hallway. I loved the foyer. I loved the floors. There was windows all around and it was bright. Even that first day walking in, I'm visualizing how I'm going to decorate their rooms. I, I knew. I am the one who was able to give her her keys. Um, it, was, it was great. Yep, she gave me my keys to my house. And I could have turned flips. I, I, I was so happy because it's like, are these really my keys? to my house, <laughs> finally. There is breaking news as we come on the air. Monster hurricane bearing down on Texas where millions are bracing for a natural disaster. What could be the most powerful storm to hit the U.S. in a dozen years? And major population centers are in the danger zone. Tonight, emergency evacuations and last... Friday afternoon, my sister called me. She was basically like, the way they're saying that this storm is supposed to be, I don't want to be at home by myself with the kids. My husband um, is in oil and gas, and he was offshore in Mississippi. So Friday night, she came to the house. They had been staying in Chris's house with six children, three on Chris's side and three on Maisha's side. And they age and range from 17 years all the way down to four months. The kids decided that they were going to sleep downstairs and they were going to have a big slumber party. And they were together as the floodwaters rose past their curbs, rose into their front lawns, rose past car windows, and then eventually started to creep up the second floor stairs of Chris's house. Oh, God. Water is rushing inside from the garage. The messages that she was posting on social media started to really get more and more worried and more and more urgent. We all freaking out, Freddie. He's freaking out. We're all freaking out. But I was panicking. I, I was nervous. I was scared because the only thing that I kept thinking about was Jason, my oldest son. Jason is 17 years old and he has autism. It 
manifests itself in that he doesn't speak. He has some difficulties walking sometimes. And so Chris was especially concerned about making sure that he was safe. They were talking about how they were rescuing people off of the roof. And the only thing I kept thinking about was Jason can't get on the roof. Jason will not be able to get on the roof. What happened was they had to do it themselves. They they couldn't wait around any longer, they felt. The water was just getting dangerously high. And so on Monday, uh, around noon, they just decided to go. We're seeing porter potties floating down, filthy, feces infested. We know that there are snakes. And yet, we're telling the kids, it's fine, put on shoes, put as much stuff in your backpack as you can. They put um, Maisha's four-month-old daughter into her baby carrier, you know, her, her car seat. And they put the car seat into a plastic bin, um, and they floated it down the street. Makeshift Moses. The ones who, who carried that baby out were not the parents. It was an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old girl. And we had made the decision that Chris and I would hold the two-year-old because he was heavier than the four-month-old. And so at the time, all I'm thinking is, what decision do you make if they let go of my four-month-old and it takes two of us to hold my two-year-old? What do you do in this situation? And I told him, I said, please just hold her, hold her. They basically carried it through the waters. As water splattered her in her face, she was smiling up at the heaven, having the time of her life. They reached a dry house. And from there, they eventually were able to get a ride in one of the volunteer boats. Chris's house got flooded out, but Maisha's house got spared. And now they are all living together at Maisha's house. So Chris and I rode together over to her house on Wednesday afternoon as she returned to her house for the first time. When she got to the front door of her house, the key wouldn't turn. Everything had sort of swollen and buckled, and she really struggled to to get the door open. When I walked through the door, it was still water. Oh, God. And she stepped into the front hallway, and she she sort of physically heaved. Uh, her, her, her body kind of quivered uh, when she first saw it when her feet first stepped into water in her front hallway. And I just walked in and it just, it just, it smelled like, like old nasty towels. The hallway was covered in sopping wet sweatshirts and towels and other clothes that the kids had tried to shove against the door to keep water from flowing in. She walked into the living room, and that was about as far as she wanted to go. It 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 looked like a house. It didn't look like my home, and it just it was just like a house. And you could see the water line, like you could see. Like it was almost like Harvey taunting us and, oh, I may be gone, but I left you a reminder I was here. It was just sad. Yeah, I, I just, I had to get out of there. 
we did not have flood insurance because when we even asked about it, they kind of giggled and said, you live in a no flood zone. Don't, don't worry about that. And I told my sister, you don't, she, she's the kind that wants to get everything insured. And, you know, and I told her, I feel really, really bad because I'm the one who said, you don't need that. We live in a no flood zone. And she didn't get it. I'm really trying not to think about the cost right now because to me that's kind of like another added stress that I just don't want to deal with right now because I'm, I'm really, not to say that it hasn't crossed my mind about what the cost may be, but like once it hits my mind, I just try to push it out and be like, no, I'm not going to think about that right now. But... I honestly do not know. And I'm I'm nervous about what it could cost to do everything that needs to be done. On Monday, Chris went back to the house with daily producer Lindsay Garrison. This is what the water did to my life. Just total violation. And it was just, my heart kind of sank. That's pretty much how I can put it into words. Looking around in here with the wood beams exposed and all the sheetrock cut out, it's still like, wow. Still, wow. Was there something here that you were so happy wasn't hurt by the storm? Something you, when you first came in, you sort of looked for or, or anything? My mom passed away in 2001. And I, I'm sorry. I have a videotape, just um, a VCR tape of my mom singing at different services at church. And I still have a VCR. People tell me, honestly, you still have a VCR? Yes, I still have a VCR because sometimes when I'm just, you know, feeling down or I just feel like I need to see my mom or hear my mom's voice. I'll put that tape on. And I thought that the tape was destroyed. But it wasn't. It wasn't destroyed. So if it's one thing that I'm happy that didn't get destroyed. It's probably that. Just that VCR tape is probably the only thing that if it had been destroyed, I don't know. I'm just so happy that it wasn't. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cry. <laughs>
what do you think comes next for these these two sisters? How how do you foresee this playing out over the next few months and maybe even years? I mean, a lot more work. What's on my mind right now is everything. When will we be able to come back home? When will my kids start school? Are they going to have to go to another school because it's so much damage at their schools? When we do start the process of trying to fix everything, how long is that going to take? Hopefully we get somebody who's not going to try to take us. Where do we start looking? Who do we start looking with? How do we know we can trust them? How do we know just where to look, where to start? When is the FEMA inspector going to show up? Are they even going to approve us? And if they don't approve us, then what? We're going to have to get a loan. It's everything. Just everything goes through my mind. All day. Every day. Do you wish you hadn't bought this house? No, because I love my house. what else you need to know today. The Times reports that President Trump is strongly considering a plan to end DACA, the Obama-era program that protected young, undocumented immigrants from deportation. But the White House says the plan would give Congress six months to come up with a replacement for DACA, as a growing number of Republicans, led by House Speaker Paul Ryan, have asked the president to keep the program in some form. There's a lot in the news right now that the president might be looking at pulling back DACA, the Dreamers Act. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't think he should do that. There are people who are in limbo. These are kids who know no other country, uh, who, who were brought here um, by their parents and, and don't know another home. 
And so I really do believe that there needs to be a legislative solution. That's one that we're working on. Um, and I think we want to give people peace of mind. White House officials tell The Times that the president received more counsel on the issue on Monday before a planned announcement on Tuesday. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.